0: It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, My name is J.P. Watson. Uh, I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Deer Creek, and my family and I actually moved out here a little over a year ago. We moved out here to plan a new church, to start a new church uh, in the the DU area, uh, up towards the the edge of the south part of the city. So if you're here and you're visiting with us this morning, we're glad that you're here uh, with us. We are doing a short two-part series that we started last week, thinking about the church together. Uh, And last week, uh, we looked at uh, what is the church, and we looked at what uh, the Bible has to say about what the church is, that the church is a building, it's a body, it's a family, and it's a bride, and all of that wrapped up into being defined by Jesus and what he has done in his life and his death and his resurrection. And so our kind of rooting text, our text that's sort of rooting this whole thing, comes from Matthew chapter 16. Where Jesus talks to Peter and he talks about his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That Jesus will always be building his church. And so this morning what we're going to do is we're going to talk about why we need the church and uh, why we plant them. Like I told you last week, of course, the church planner is going to talk about why, uh, why do we need to plant churches. So this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to dig into why we need the church um, and then uh, why uh, we plant them. So... If you will read along with me, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18 again, the same verses that we started with uh, last week. And this is is God's word for us this morning. Let's think of it like this. This is a portion of a letter from home. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. Let's pray together and ask God to help us understand his word this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and uh, many of us are coming from weekends that have been wonderful. Many of us are coming from weekends that have been hard. Wherever, wherever we are this morning, uh, we are comforted by the fact that you give us your word to meet us exactly where we are. That you give us your word to show us our Savior Jesus, to show us that we are sinful, We are prideful, we're selfish, we're broken, and we live in a world that is broken, and we need rescue from that. And you have given us Jesus to rescue us from that. And so Holy Spirit, this morning we pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would grow us in grace this morning, and we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Off of the coast of South Carolina is an island uh, that's called John's Island. And on John's Island, John's Island is known for having this famous oak tree that's called the Angel Oak. And the Angel Oak tree is somewhere between 400 and 500 years old. In 1989, Hurricane Hugo hit the coast of South Carolina. I was just a little child at this time, but I remember it being a really, really big deal. They actually turned the the interstate I-26 to where everything was heading away from the coast to get everybody out of there. And it was the largest hurricane and still is the largest hurricane on record to hit the coast of South Carolina. It absolutely decimated everything. It decimated everything. It decimated everything on these uh, barrier islands that are all along the coast and If you were to take a look at video footage from 1989... ...of some of the destruction that Hurricane Hugo did... ...and you were to look at John's Island... ...you would see this one massive oak tree that was still standing. It was still standing in the midst of all of this destruction... ...that had been done by Hurricane Hugo. And there's only one reason that the angel oak was still standing... And that was because it had a root system that was totally and utterly uncompromised by that hurricane. It had a root system that was holding it up and holding it strong. And some 30 years later now, they're still writing articles about how the Angel Oak survived Hurricane Hugo and now is growing and and healthier than it ever has been. You should go take a look at this. Well, that connects us. ...with what I want to talk about this morning. You see, because I want our takeaway this morning to be this... ...that Jesus is the root system of his church. That though his church may be battered... ...though his church may be beaten... ...though his church may have storms that come at it... ...he will not let it die. It absolutely will survive. That's exactly what he tells us in Matthew 16. That the church will survive no matter what... ...because of the root system that we have. Because of Jesus... So given that, this morning, let's talk about why it is that we need it. Why it is that we need the church and why do we plant them. And I'm going to go ahead and give you a little bit of a warning. Our first point on why we need it is actually going to be much longer than, uh, than why we plant them. So you can plan ahead accordingly. So why do we need it? Well, it's actually pretty simple. Jesus said so. Because Jesus said so. Jesus said that we are actually made to be united to God and to each other. He tells us this in John chapter 17. In John 17, Jesus is about to go to the cross and he has this lengthy prayer that he prays. And here's a portion of that prayer that he's praying for his disciples and for those who will come after them. Verses 20 through 24, Jesus says, I don't ask only for these, for these only, just the disciples that have been here with me. But also for those who will believe in me through their word Jesus is praying this prayer for his disciples. He's he's praying this prayer for the the rest of his people who will come after him. Jesus is actually praying this prayer for you and me. We are on his mind as he is praying this prayer. And it is just before he's about to go to the cross. Just before he's about to go and to lay down his life for his people. He prays, Father, would you make them one? Would you make them one with you and one with me and one with each other? Would you unite them to me and unite them together? We need the church because we are actually made for it. We are made for the relationships that exist in the church. We are made for a relationship with God and with each other. We are made for an embodied relationship with God and each other. That word embodied means real. It means deep. It means lasting. It means actual, genuine presence with each other. Physical presence with each other. And all of this rooted in Jesus. Rooted in Jesus and the love that God has for the Son and for the Son's bride, as we talked about last week. We need it because Jesus says that we're actually made for it. That's why we need the church. that we're made for a community with each other. And this actually goes all the way back to the beginning. It goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 where God created all things. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God had made everything and he had made Adam. And he looked at Adam and he said, it's not good that he is alone. So, I will make a helper who is fit for him. It's not good that man is alone. And so what God does is God makes Eve for Adam. And he tells Adam and Eve, here's what you're supposed to do living in my creation, living in relationship with me and with each other. You're supposed to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. You're supposed to make other little image bearers for relationship with you and relationship with me, an embodied community of people. Remember, God has always been building his church. We're made for the church But that is really hard, isn't it? That's really, really hard. It's really hard to think about engaging in those kinds of relationships. It's really hard to believe that we're made for those kinds of relationships. And the reason that it's so hard is the very reason that Jesus had to come into the world in the first place. The reason that Jesus prays this prayer in John 17 and asks for us. Father, give them To me, And that reality is the reality of sin. The reality of sin. You see, Adam and Eve were made for this relationship with God... ...and made for a relationship with each other to be fruitful and to multiply. And God told them, there's this one thing. I don't want you to eat of the fruit of this one tree. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. You will bring death. You will bring chaos. You will bring destruction into the good creation... ...that I have made. And Adam and Eve thought they knew better than God. And so they disobeyed. They ate from that tree. And sin entered into, into the world that we live in. One pastor's described sin like this. Is sin is the sand in the gears of our relationships. If you're mechanically inclined at all, if you like cars or anything like that... ...what would happen if you put sand in gears... Bad things, right? It would mess everything up. Sin messes everything up. And we even see it immediately when Adam and Eve are called out by God. God comes to them and says, where are you? What did you do? Adam says, hey, 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 hey. The woman that you gave me made me do it. (laughs) See, See, Adam not only blames Eve, Adam blames God. He blames God. The reality of sin in the world. The reality that that, that everything is broken and that we are broken. That chaos exists. That there's sand in the gears of our relationships. Things don't work right because of our sin. Do you feel that? I know I do. I feel that because oftentimes... I just think that I'm better than everybody else. I do. Like, if you really got down underneath my heart, oftentimes I just think I'm better than everybody else. And you know what the Bible calls that? The Bible calls that pride. And pride is a sin. It messes everything up. Pride is thinking that we are better. Thinking that we know better, we know more, we care better, we care more. That we are more competent than God than each other and it messes everything up and this is what it leads to you see pride leads to not trusting God and that he has our good in mind all the time it's not trusting that God loves our children more than we do we think we know better than God when it comes to parenting oftentimes I know I do I don't trust God that he loves my kids more than I do. And I become convinced that if I just put the right inputs into their little brains, then I'm going to get the right outputs out as well too. And that's even assuming that I know what right is. And so I don't trust God. Not relate. And what it leads to is us not relating to our children in a relationship with one another but actually becoming just more like a taskmaster to, master to them and not in a relationship with them. I often think that if I can control their brain, then I can control their heart. We do it to ourselves, too. We think the same things about ourselves. If we, we put in the right inputs, then the right outputs are going to come out as well, too. And so what that ends up doing is we end up growing in pride toward one another. We end up thinking that we're better than other people, that we know more than other people, that we care more than other people. We become very judgmental towards others. And then we end up thinking, well, what others really need is they just need my experience in their lives. And so we relate to one another just trying to sort of duplicate our experience in other people's lives. And eventually what that turns into is we think of people more as projects... ...than we do as those who bear God's image in his world. You ever been on the receiving end of that? It's no fun. But here's what's true. We're all also tempted to do that too. And it's pride. It's sin. Thinking somehow we have this notion that we're better. This is why Jesus asked for us in John 17. This is why... Jesus asked the Father, would you make them one with me? Would you make them one with each other? You see, Jesus does not let us skip over why he came into this world. And it's because of our sin. It's because of our sin. That's why Jesus had to come into the world. And it cost him his life. It cost him a broken body given for us. And his blood shed for us. And he prays this prayer on the way to the cross. He knows exactly where he's going. He's going to go and to become our sin for us. So that we would be freed from it. So that we would be freed from pride. We would be freed from this notion that somehow we are better than others Jesus goes to the cross to free us into this embodied community with him and with each other. It's hard. It's really difficult to get over ourselves. It really is. It's it's really hard to get past thinking that we are just the best thing that God has ever made. You know, it's also hard for other reasons too. Other reasons that I think have kind of become somewhat unique in the course of the last decade or so. It's also hard because increasingly we try to attempt to have community unembodied. That is not really actually with each other. We do this through outlets that are called social media, right? We do this through Facebook, we do this through Instagram, we do it through TikTok, we do it through all of these other kinds of things. We try and we strive to grapple to have community that's a non-actual presence kind of community. Which is really pride at the end of the day. Because it's saying, God, we can do community better than you can. We don't really need physical community. God, we can do this better. And so we even see this in the church. Churches that are totally built around online communities. That is no community at all. It is not. And the truth is actually bearing that out. It really is. The truth is bearing that out. It won't work. It doesn't work. Why? Because we're not made for it. (laughs) We're made to actually be with each other. And so what ends up happening when we try to do this community thing in a non-actual embodied sort of way, we grow in frustration, we grow in cynicism and suspicion, we grow in anxiety and depression, we grow in pride and judgmentalism. It won't work because we're not made that way. Jesus, our root system, says that we are actually made for an embodied community, that he is shaping. He is shaping. He is bringing us to our sins. And an understanding of it. And bringing us to the reality that he came to lay down his life for us. That he gave his body for us. That he shed his blood to free us from our sin. We are made in such a way that we need a place where we can go and be honest about our sin. Be honest about our brokenness. And honest about our need for Jesus. And you know what? Jesus actually sees the church as a gift. It's not just something that you and I have to deal with. Rather, the church is a a gift that is given to us. That we get to actually live alongside of one another in this community that he is shaping through his body and through his blood. It's a gift to us. I want us to think about a couple of ways that the church is a gift to us that's encapsulated... ...in Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth... ...chapter 12, verse 26. You see, Paul says this... ...and we looked at chapter 12 a little bit last week... ...when we talked about the body... ...and how the body all works together. And Paul even extends that... ...and he says, if one member suffers... ...all suffer together. If one member is honored... ...all rejoice together. You see, Jesus sees the church as a gift... ...to us to walk alongside of one another in our suffering. In our suffering. Paul says the body of Christ, the church, shares in suffering together. Paul would even go on in his second letter to the church at Corinth... ...and tell them we actually share in our afflictions together... ...with the comfort of Christ that we are comforted by our Savior as we share in our suffering, as we share in our afflictions together. We are made for community to share in suffering, to walk alongside of each other as we experience the effects of sin in the world. You see, because it's true, sin is personal, and it has to do with our own personal pride and our own personal brokenness in our own hearts, but there's an effect that has happened because sin has come into the world as well too. And God says all of creation is actually cursed because of our sin. And that means that the world that we live in is one that always feels like it's moving towards decay. It always feels like it's it's bent towards destruction. It's bent towards brokenness. We live in a world that's messed up. It's broken. Yeah, sin affects our own hearts personally, but it's also everywhere around us because it affects everything. And what Jesus does is he gifts us the church to walk with each other as we walk through the effects of sin in this world. As we walk through the brokenness of this world together. As we walk through tragedy. As we walk through cancer as we walk through a whole host of just terrible, terrible things because of the effects of sin in the world. In mine and Carrie's church back in North Carolina, for those of you that don't know, Carrie and I were pastoring in a church in North Carolina for seven years before we moved out here last year. And seven years certainly isn't the 30-plus that Dwayne's put in here, um, but seven years is a pretty decent amount of time. Um, uh, to, to be with people. And we got to be a part of a, a, of a community that, that lived this out together. And I got to see this in so many ways, but one way that, that comes to mind actually is something that's happened since we've been here uh, in Colorado is a friend of ours, uh, Hisela. Hisela and Ricardo uh, lived in Venezuela their entire lives. And when Venezuela's government changed a number of years ago, they found themselves as political refugees. And they had been moved uh, to the states, and for some reason, the U.S. government put them in Greenville, North Carolina. Um, But we got to know Ricardo and Hisala and their family, and what a sweet gift um, that they were to us. And since we've moved out here, uh, Hisala earlier this year she began experiencing significant headaches, Um, just debilitating, incredibly painful, and. She would go to the ER, and they would try to figure it out, and they couldn't exactly figure out what was going on. And they started running tests, and, and some of you know how this goes. Is you, you start with those initial tests, and then if you don't get some conclusion from those, then you've got another battery of tests. And then if you don't get some conclusion from those, you've got another battery of tests, and that's when you're really getting into the scary area of things. And they couldn't figure out what was going on with Hesla, and so they finally did a scan of her brain, and they found a massive tumor in her brain. Um, and they went in for surgery to check as to whether or not it was malignant or it was benign. And it was, it was malignant. And just before they went into surgery, Ricardo looked at his wife, Hesla, and he said, "Hisla, if I don't see you after this, I will see you in the resurrection. I will see you again. I will see you in the resurrection. Because Jesus has come and he's given himself for us. And he promises us that there's going to be a day where brain tumors don't exist. Where they they aren't a reality in the world. That he is going to rip it out by the roots because he is the greater root system. And what's been beautiful even to see from afar is to see Christ Presbyterian Church in Greenville, North Carolina wrap their arms around this family. Day by day people go and sit with Hisla. As she's starting to become, her brain is affected in such a way that she's starting to not think straight. And a few weeks ago, I was watching their online service after one of our services. And they were coming up to take communion. And I watched Ricardo roll his wife up there in a wheelchair to come and receive the body and blood of Jesus given for her and shed for her. You see, Jesus gifts us the church to walk through a broken world and a messed up world where suffering exists with the promise that there is going to be a day where it will not exist anymore, where Jesus will absolutely rip sin and the effects of it out by the roots because he is the greater root system and he will not let his church die. She will survive. Jesus gifts us the church to walk through suffering, Jesus also gifts us the church to rejoice together. The second half of verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 12. You see, Paul says that we share in each other's suffering, but we also get to share in each other's rejoicing. That we get to do that, that the church is a gift to experience rejoicing together, to celebrate what it is that God does in our midst together. To celebrate even in the midst of suffering, we have a hope that is so much bigger and it's so much greater than just what this life has to offer. That we have a hope that we will one day be with our Savior and He with us. And we will be in a world that is made new that He is making. To celebrate that together, to celebrate the joys of life together. A friend of mine a number of years ago who was a police officer. He had been a cop for a number of years. And he had gone into the police force right out of high school. And, uh, and so he worked his way up through the ranks. And he had ultimately become a, uh, a detective. And he worked in the, the, the SVU detective department. And then... And I got to know each other as he and his wife and his daughter started visiting our church. And I got to sit down with him and have lunch with him and, uh, and hear about what his life is like as an SBU detective. And he would tell me, he would say, man, there is real evil in this world. There is real, real, terrible, terrible things that happen in this world. And he began to process and think to himself, surely there is some sort of real justice that has to be able to happen for all the evil that I see on a daily basis. There must be something full and ultimate to judge all of these terrible, terrible things that I see, these victims that I see. What is their hope? Where's their justice? Where's their judgment? And then he said he began coming to our church and he began to hear that there is a God who does judge. There is a God who does bring justice. There is a God who cares about the reality that evil exists in this world. And he has a settled opposition to evil and everything that is wrong with the world that we live in. That God does judge. And he said that as I began coming to church and hearing more and more and more, I realized, oh wait, the seeds of the same evil that I see on a day-to-day basis, they're in my own heart. I get to work with police officers who go home and they drink their night away and they're terrible fathers and they destroy their families. And, And you know what? I'm tempted to that too. The same evil that I see on a day-to-day basis, the seeds of that evil, they're actually in my own heart. Deep down, I'm not really any better. He said he began to ask questions around, is there actually any hope? Is there any hope for anyone? Is there any hope for me? Is there any hope for the victims that I walk alongside of every day? Is there any hope for their perpetrators? Is there any way to escape the judgment that we all deserve? He said, then I heard the good news. I heard the good news that God has actually made a way. That God has made a way in Jesus, his one and only son. And that Jesus takes the judgment that we deserve. And he does that on the cross. He actually becomes ...our evil. He becomes our sin. And in exchange for that... ...what we get... ...is His perfect... ...spotless record. He said, I heard that... ...and I thought, oh my... ...there is hope for me. There there is hope for... ...the victims that I work with. There's even hope for the people... ...who perpetrate... ...those terrible, terrible crimes... There is hope, and it's only, only found in Jesus. And we got to baptize Ben with his daughter on the same day. That's rejoicing. That we get to experience that together. That's rejoicing. That's what it looks like for Jesus to gift his church... ...to walk through life rejoicing together... ...that Jesus comes to seek and to save the lost. Do you rejoice like that? Do we rejoice like that? Do we share and anticipate that God will change our hearts? Do we rejoice together when God reveals pride and selfishness and evil deep down in our own hearts, if we are being the embodied people of God rooted in Jesus, we can't help but rejoice with one another. We can't help but walk through suffering with each other. We need the church because Jesus says that we're actually made for it. And let me take just a moment here to encourage you to encourage you as a church, because at Deer Creek, I see you rejoicing together. I see you walking through suffering together. I could name countless, countless things that I've seen just in the year that I've been here. And so, I want to encourage you that I see rejoicing. I see suffering. I see a place that wants to see people come in and to see this Jesus who seeks and saves the lost. I see a people who don't ignore the reality that the world that we live in is messed up and it's broken, but that we have hope, that we are a people of hope. So, I want to encourage you. I see that happening here at Deer Creek. I see that happening. So, we need the church because Jesus says that we need it. (laughs) Jesus says that we're actually made for it. So, why plant them? Why plant churches? Why plant new churches? Well, this is simple. Jesus' answer to why we need the church is because Jesus said so. And the answer to why we plant them is because Jesus said to. That's why. Why? Jesus said to plant churches. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus, he looks out at compassion on the crowds um, that are there that he is talking to. And he looks at disciples and he says to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus is talking about the church there, gathering people in, bringing people into the church. And then Jesus At the end of Matthew's gospel, after his resurrection, he gives this charge to his disciples. That's kind of commonly known as the Great Commission. And he looks at them, says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Jesus, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus plans to see churches embodied, the embodied community of God's people throughout time and space. That's his plan. It's always been God's plan. Jesus says, go. Go and make disciples. Go. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers, they're few. And the net effect of that is that we would plant churches. And if you go and you read through the book of Acts, what you see is you see the followers of Jesus going out, going into new towns, gathering people together, starting new churches... ...and and, and things moving along in such a way that that the Apostle Paul ends up writing bunches of letters to these churches... ...because you know what, there are a bunch of people who are sinners and we're messed up and we get together... ...and then we rub each other the wrong way and everything and Jesus says, I'm working in that. I'm at work in that, bringing you through rejoicing and suffering and all of those things... ...making you see how beautiful what it is that I have done for you... ...and actually making you beautiful myself because you are my bride... Jesus' plan is to see churches planted throughout time and space, embodied communities for our suffering, for our rejoicing, united to Jesus, being made one with Jesus and with each other in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. We must be about building these communities. This is the one thing that Jesus says that his church is supposed to do. Is to plant churches. Jesus actually commands it. We can't opt out of it. Because until Jesus comes back, there's more harvest to be gathered in. And so that's why Jesus says what he says. You know, and that really connects me to our own story of how we ended up out here. We had been in a community in, in North Carolina, at a church in North Carolina, where we had experienced living life alongside of people, walking through suffering and rejoicing together. And if you've, you've been in a community like that, and if you're here at Deer Creek, you're in that kind of community, it's infectious. It's an infectious thing. You you want to see more people come into that community, to come and and to be a part of that community. And what that did for us is that opened us up to new possibilities. Might God be calling the Watson family to go into the harvest where the laborers are few? Uh, For those of you who don't know, in the city of Denver, north of about 800,000 people right now, we have uh, two sister churches in the city. If you blow that up to the metro area, we're getting we're we're bumping up towards four million. Um, I think that we have a total. I think we have a total of eleven churches and church plants. It's still a lot. It's still it's still a lot of people. And what we experience in our process of potentially coming out here is that. Deer Creek was a place that shared in our suffering and rejoicing in North Carolina as we talked to Dwayne, as we talked to Tim, as we talked to Daniel. You see, we began to open ourselves up to the possibility that God might be calling us elsewhere, calling us into church planning, and we began to walk down that path sort of one step at a time, so to speak, not really knowing where it would lead and actually being okay with God saying, you know what, you don't need to go and do that. You need to stay right where you're at. But we began walking down this path. We talked to people who were thinking about church planning and and talking about church planning. And we ended up getting put in touch with this network called the Western Church Planning Network. And I reached out to the guy who was the director at the time, a guy named Ryan Sutherland, who had pastored in Missoula, Montana. We couldn't get our schedules on the same page. So, which was fine. We were okay. We were just kind of walking in this direction, so to speak. And then something big hit in 2020, in March of 2020, this thing called COVID. Not sure if you've heard of that or not. Um, And that paused the whole thing. We were like, okay, maybe church planning is something that's out there. But what we do know right now is that we're being called to pastor in this place through this thing. So we were like, okay, that's cool. No big deal. About a month into, into COVID, I received an email from Ryan Sutherland. He said, hey... I know this sounds really weird right now, probably, but if you're still interested in talking about this church planning thing, um, I'd be interested in talking to you about it. You're like, oh, okay, you know, nothing to, lo- nothing to lose here on, uh, on our end. So got on the phone with Ryan and had a conversation with him, figured out that the Western Church Planning Network's a- a- approach to planning churches was really attractive to us because there was a process that was in place. And it was a process that was born out of failure. It was a process that had to get born out of coming to grips with, hey, maybe we're not doing this the best way and we could do it better. That was encouraging to us. And what that process led to is that the way we plant churches in the Western Church Planting Network is we set up people with host churches that are healthy places, that are really invested in church planting and want to see churches planted. And so he put me on the phone with a guy named Tim Rehnquist. And so I got on the phone with Tim and I started talking to Tim. Hey, how are you guys thinking about this and everything and all of that? And that conversation went went well. Um, and I said, hey, would you um, would you be willing to talk to my wife just, you know, just to Carrie? Not to me and Carrie, but just talk to Carrie because she, she looks at things differently than I do. And that's actually really helpful to me. And so Tim was like, yes, absolutely, of course I will. So we talked to Carrie. Carrie was like, oh, yeah, that was a really interesting conversation. And then I sat down and I talked. This is all via Zoom, right? Yeah. Um, with Daniel and Tim and Dwayne over Zoom. And at the end of that conversation, I was like, man, man I kind of really like how these guys are thinking about stuff and what they're doing out there and everything. And uh, then they said, well, we want to talk to you and Carrie together as well, too. And i like, okay. So Carrie and I get on a Zoom call with them, and we're talking with them and everything. And um, in our minds, we're thinking, these are just conversations. Um, we're just, we're just checking this stuff out and everything. We got to that, the end of that conversation and, uh, Dwayne on zoom, he said, well, we want to be really upfront with you guys and really direct. And I was like, Oh, he's about to say something. <laughs> you know, if somebody says that to you. You're like, hey, something's coming. I'm not sure what's coming. And he said, we are hoping, we are hoping and praying that God is calling you guys to come out here and to in a church in Denver. And in that moment, I was like, oh, oh, wow, they're really serious about this. Because a guy who's been in ministry in the same place for 30 plus years doesn't say something like that off the cuff. He doesn't do that. And so we began to pray. And we began to go through the process of talking with our church family in North Carolina. And we began to ask questions about coming out here and everything And the Lord ultimately was calling us out here to come and to plant a church. And so we left that community where we had experienced so much rejoicing, where we had experienced so much suffering together alongside seeing how beautiful Jesus is and what his promise to make us new, to not only forgive us of our sins, but to grow us in his grace and to heal our wounds And to bring healing to the world as a whole. We began to process through that together. We began to cry together in North Carolina because we knew that the Lord was calling us out here. And those people back in North Carolina began to pray for Deer Creek. Began to pray for you all to receive us and to send us out to see something new started, to see a church planted, to see a community that walks alongside of one another and suffering and rejoicing together, rooted in Jesus. And so, so many people have been praying for this now because you all have been praying for us as well too. And we get to begin to see that stuff come to fruition. And Presbytery even says, yes, go for it. As Dwayne said last week. And so, in the fall of 23, not this coming fall, but the next fall, is our plan to launch a new church. To launch a new church in the south part of the city, right along the edge of Denver. To hopefully be the third church in our denomination in a city of close to 800,000 people. In the fall of this year, we'll, we'll begin having some conversations around what does it look like for you ought to be a part of that. For you ought to come alongside of that. To see a new church planted. To be a part of this bigger picture. And this bigger vision of things. Because the harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. And Jesus calls his church to plant churches. We want to be a part of what God is doing here. We want to be a part what God is doing through Deer Creek, what God is doing through the Western Church Planning Network, to see more embodied communities rejoicing and even in suffering rooted in Jesus, rooted in the good news that He has come. And as the author of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross for us, for His bride, and that He makes us one with Him and one with each other. And to proclaim this together and to live it out in community. Knowing that Jesus will not let the gates of hell prevail against his building, against his body, against his family, against his bride, against the church. Jesus will see it through. He is our root system. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, it is out of your love for us that you would send your one and only Son... And you tell us that whoever believes in him will have life everlasting. And Jesus, you tell us that you came into the world to save the world. To save sinners like us. To forgive us of our sin and to heal our brokenness. And you were resurrected. And we too have the promise of resurrection and new life in you. Holy Spirit would... Would you convince our hearts more and more and more of how wonderful this news is? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.